Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions about sex work, sexual violence, and the legal system. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, what are the laws around sex work? A couple of weeks ago, I was prepping the sex work lecture for my human sexuality class. The chapter on sex work in the textbook I use is uh, not great. I always try to find external readings, ideally by sex workers, for my students to read as a supplement to the textbook. I pulled up a couple articles by Naomi Sayers, an indigenous feminist and now lawyer. Her articles sum up the issues with the current sex work laws in Canada really well. I've followed the legal challenges around sex work pretty closely, and every time I read about it, it makes me mad all over again. I was reading this in my living room and grunting in dismay and decided to start venting by rattling off some of the issues to Jeremy, my partner, and the audio wizard for this podcast. Instead of commiserating with me, he was actually surprised. He had very little knowledge about any of these laws and kept asking questions. I was surprised that he was surprised because I foolishly assumed everyone knew what I knew about sex work laws. You think that's bad, I said. Listen to some of these historical laws. We went back and forth for quite a while before he said, you really need to do a podcast episode on this. Listener, this is that episode. (laughs) Instead of me rattling off facts and dates and raging on my own, we decided to model this episode on a podcast we both really enjoy called Meet Your Heroes. On that podcast, one member of the host couple does research on a, quote, heroic figure from the past, like Walt Disney, Sigmund Freud, or Mother Teresa, and essentially surprises the other person with that knowledge. So that's what we decided to do. Since our original convo about this, I've done even more research around sex work and the law in Canada, and you're going to get to listen while I tell Jeremy all about it. We will focus mostly on Canadian laws, but we'll also dabble in other countries. For example, I'll share about the FOSTA-SESTA laws in the U.S. and how they're changing your internet, or some countries where sex workers is legalized, like Amsterdam and Australia, or decriminalized, like in New Zealand. I'll also explain the differences between those different legal structures and why it matters. We're going to talk about the way-back days when settlers first arrived here, the feminist debates about sex work, sex workers' collective rights movements, and the path we took to get to the shiny, new, terrible laws in Canada. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first, before we launch into the conversation, I want to make my perspective clear. I stand in solidarity with sex work organizations around the world that advocate for the decriminalization of sex work. Decriminalization means that people have a right to do sex work just like any other job and that consenting adults are not told what they can and cannot do with their bodies. Sex worker organizations such as Maggie's Place in Toronto, Swan Vancouver, and the Sex Workers Outreach Project, which is global, I think now, also known as SWAP, um, those are just a few that all fight for the rights of sex workers and all support decriminalization of sex work. 
Amnesty International published their support of sex worker rights in 2015 and formalized the policy in 2016 with a call for, quote, decriminalization for all aspects of adult consensual sex work, unquote. This is an issue of human rights and labor rights. Of course, sex trafficking and non-consensual sex trade labor is something that needs to be ended. And that need does not need to conflict with the rights of sex workers. We can support sex workers and work to end trafficking and other non-consensual activity. Lumping everything together and making it all illegal does not make anything go away. It just drives it further underground and adds stigma and danger to people involved in the sex trade. So those are my biases, just as a context before we go into this conversation with Jeremy. Here we go. So we're here today to talk about sex work and the law in Canada. Where should we begin? Uh, well, can you give me a bit of history? <laughs> it's actually been a couple of weeks since we had the conversation, so maybe uh, some historical examples of funky sex worker laws. <laughs> yes, let us begin at the beginning. Most of the laws that we're talking about are specifically focused on or derived from British law and in, in the English language. And so I just wanted to put those limitations on it before we launch into it. So Brits came over to this land and brought a lot of British laws with them. But of course, they were. it was also a mishmash of things because there's different people in different places and... Things weren't as regulated as they were back in Britain, uh, so it was kind of a, a free-for-all in a lot of respects. But apparently within Canada, the first mention of anything to do with prostitution in Canadian statutes was the Nova Scotia Act of 1759, where people could be imprisoned for lewd behavior. And apparently lewd behavior could be really anything that was even suggestive of sexuality. So just... Um, Existing as a sexual being uh, and also engaging in some sort of sexual behavior was really the biggest part. Right. Sounds dangerously subjective. Oh, yes. And that's the problem with a lot of laws, when, especially when it comes to things like pornography, which we're actually not going to talk about pornography today. That is a form of sex work, but it is governed by a whole different set of laws. When we're talking about sex work, what we're talking about here is specifically people providing sexual services to someone who is paying, which I always find bizarre that we separate pornography from other kinds of sex work because pornography can be excused under the law because it is um, like an artistic expression. So even though the people acting in the porn are having sex and getting paid for having sex, they're allowed to do that as long as it's not, quote, obscene under Canadian laws that's a whole other story of what makes something obscene or not, very subjective. Yeah, yeah, I guess the thing with pornography is, that, but you also have publication and stuff like that imposed on top of it. Like there might be more of a corporate structure attached to it. Yes, so that's an interesting thing as well because I asked my students when we talked about this in class because we talk about sex work and we talk about uh, pornography as part of sex work. And I asked them, why do you think sex work is not legal, but pornography is? And the actual law reason is because pornography is protected under like free speech things and it's artistic expression. Uh, but a lot of my students identified that in pornography, the people pr 
profiting and benefiting are usually men, so the male producers, writers, mm-hmm. etc. Um, and women are, of course, paid, but the the people who make the bulk of the money in pornography are men. Right. Whereas with sex work, it's women taking their own bodies and making money off of it. And so they're the ones profiting. Of course, that's not always the case. Um, there's lots of exploitation that can happen. Um, but yeah, that's that distinction that perhaps sways the laws, which what makes pornography okay and sex work uh-huh. not okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Women having like full agency over their over their bodies, yeah. sexual conduct. I never thought about it from that angle before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is one of many angles. <laughs> so in general, sex work stuff is very complicated. And I don't want to portray it today as though it's simplistic. Really, we're just talking about some of the laws around it, some of the ridiculousness in the laws around it. Um, but the issues around sex work and the debates around it are complex and nuanced, and a lot of people are harmed um, under the guise of sex work. Um, So early on, there was vagrancy laws, and under vagrancy laws, different things were qualified as vagrancy, one of which was, quote, being a common prostitute or night walker. So at this point in time, so this is the 1800s, um, and even beyond that, just being a prostitute or being suspected of being a prostitute got you potentially arrested and put Being in jail. Being suspected. Yes. <laughs> so if you were outside, particularly at night, and you could not, quote, give a sac- satisfactory account of yourself, then you could be suspected of being a prostitute. Wow. Talk about sexual profiling. <laughs> yeah. And you can imagine the police at that time or the law people <laughs> at that time, um, who they're going to decide is you know, allowed to be outside and or who is there for a valid reason or who is just walking down the street as a respectable woman versus someone seen as a prostitute. Ugh, that sounds right for abuse too. Yes. And of course, we still have that now with profiling and carding laws, mm-hmm. like we're like stop and frisk, all of that stuff. It's the same idea just for sex workers back in the day. Right, right. So yeah, early on, essentially being a prostitute or being suspected of being one could get you arrested. And so along with the vagrancy laws, there was more push for people who were doing sex work to go inside. Um, Of course, then they made laws against body houses. There already were laws against body houses um, through in England. Um, It seemed to be kind of overlooked in Canada, like this was just a thing that was okay. And so for the most of the 1800s, prostitution happened in doors, uh, in body houses, because it was a way of avoiding getting arrested for vagrancy. And then... Uh, explicitly in, I think it was like 1829 or 1839 in New Brunswick, they made a rule banning body houses. But again, it was like sporadically applied. Right, right. So it's probably just kind of one of those, there's some kind of conservative groundswell and they were just like, we know we must close the body houses. Yeah. So a, a lot of the rules and regulations were driven by people's concerns around morality. The morality stuff comes a little bit later. But it, again, at this point, there's like patchworks of communities all over the place with different laws, different regulations. Uh, but my personal favorite, and I think this is what got us started the other night when you were like, oh, my gosh, you have to make a podcast episode about this, uh, was the Contagious Diseases Act. And so this was 
instituted in Britain in 1864 and brought over to Canada in 1865. And it was specifically the idea that you could arrest someone, again, suspected of being a prostitute, um, who could potentially have venereal disease. And this was done as a way to protect the men (laughs) and particularly protect soldiers um, from the evil women who were spreading venereal diseases. (laughs) Right. Because women have been painted throughout history as sort of vessels of disease, as though the disease does not spread (laughs) by more than one person being involved. Vessels of disease and temptation and all that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. And so the Contagious Diseases Act, the way it was supposed to work is if you were suspected of being a prostitute or just suspected of being a woman with a venereal disease, you were able to be arrested. And there was these special hospitals where they had they were essentially imprisoned until they until they could be tested for venereal disease. If they had it, they could not leave until they were cured. What? Yes. This is in this country? Sort of. So that's how it worked in England. Um, and they instituted the same laws here in Canada, but it it wasn't really instituted because apparently the hospitals needed to, like, confine these people in were not really available. Right. And so it didn't really gather full steam in Canada <laughs> the way <laughs> it did in the UK, but just the idea that women could be arrested for just being suspected of having a venereal disease. Right, right. Maybe at least over here, the people who worked at the hospital just like, wait, you want me to be a medical official and do tests and work these long hours and you want me to make sure that women don't leave this hospital like a compound? Screw you. Yeah, exactly. Although I'm sure... That's, my, that's my generous reading of it. But. <laughs> okay. So after the Contagious Diseases Act, which was... A law in Canada from 1865 to 1870, and again, it gave legal right to arrest and take in anyone suspected of potentially having a venereal disease. To be clear, women (laughs) suspected of having a venereal disease. And that kind of led into anti-immigration fears. So I think there was a few different things that kind of came together to start fueling this anti-immigration, again, from these like British settlers when non-white immigrants started Mm -hmm. coming to this area. um, They started to then shift into this realm of like immigrants are stealing poor white or like these innocent white women and they're trafficking them and we need to save the women and protect them because they are being exploited by these immigrants. Right, right. So that was kind of the next wave of rules or like, or sort of the next wave of panic and why we had to stop prostitution in this country because it was poor, sweet, innocent white women being explo- exploited <laughs> by these scary non-white immigrant people. Um, I hope it's clear from my tone that I think this is absurd, like that I'm mocking them. Um, I also think it's absurd. I'd like to be on the record <laughs> Yes. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but one of the most uh, abs- uh, like shocking laws that I came across while poking around in this research is that in Vancouver, where we're both from, um, where there's a large East Asian population, um, that, and especially in the early 1900s, there was a lot of Chinese people in Vancouver. 
And the, there became such an obsession with immigrants um, and foreigners who were exploiting these white women that one of the racist laws that popped up in Vancouver in 1923 was because in Vancouver, the red light district where the sex workers mainly worked had kind of shifted and moved into Chinatown. Um, and so because of that, there was this link between t- Chinatown and sex work. And so they decided to create a new law called the Woman and Girls Protection Act in 1923 that forbid any foreigner from employing a white woman ah. for anything. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, if you were a white woman, you could not have a boss who was not white. Oh, that's, yeah, wow, that's upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> and so, of course, you know, immediately... Lots of women lost their jobs, like if they were working for Chinese employers, and they started protesting, um, and there was protests against these laws, um, and I'm not sure actually how long it lasted, but I can't even fathom this idea that like we have to protect women so much that we have to ban them from working for people who are not white. Ah, right. Well, I mean, things got so bad in Vancouver, there was a riot. Right. So... So that's one of the many examples of laws that were written by, like, white politicians to protect poor, sweet, innocent women and girls, and particularly white women and girls, that the white women and girls had nothing to say about. Like, or not nothing to say about, but they were not consulted. They weren't asked what would help them. It was just these dudes being like, here, ladies, let us protect you. Uh, We know what's best for you. Right. Um, Which is really, like, the history of all laws. (laughs) (laughs) Laws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just uh, patrician good times. Uh, so the backing up a little bit, uh, the Canada Criminal Code was went into effect in 1892. And at that point in time, the laws around vagrancy were really enshrined into this new nation state of Canada. Mm. Um the vagrancy laws, uh, and then body house rules uh, and rules against body houses were officially um, sanctioned in the Canadian Criminal Code. So that was from 18, in 1892, and not a lot changed in the, the century that came after it. Uh, there was little um, challenges here and there or shifting of language. So so there were the criminal code amendments that Trudeau passed in 1969 that led to his famous line um, that what's done in private between adults doesn't concern the criminal code. And those rules were specifically, like the changes were specifically around homosexuality, access to contraception, access to abortion. But that statement was taken and then used from sex work activists to push for more rights and legalization of sex work. Right. God, that must have been a tough fight in like 1971. Oh, 69. Well, it began in 1969, yeah. Yeah. And then it was really in the 70s where we see the launch of sex worker rights organizations. Mm -hmm. And I think the word sex worker itself was believed to be coined in the 70s, uh, I can't find the name of the person. I'll put that in the script, a <laughs> reference to that. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, the sex worker rights movement is apparently officially launched in 1975 in Lyon, France. <clears throat> and at this time, approximately 100 sex workers took over a 
church um, and demanded repeal of laws that interfered with their work. Oh. And it kind of spread from there. Um, some of the big famous ones in the 70s in San Francisco, there was an organization called Coyote, uh, which stood for Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And so their goal was to essentially legitimize sex work and um, essentially get sex workers' rights to do what they wanted with their mm -hmm. own bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and again, the the movements were really, even early on, were about decriminalization. So the idea of this should not be regulated under the law. These are consenting adults doing things with their own bodies. Why are laws involved at all? Right. But the idea is, gee, you know, could a woman just decide who she wants to have sex with or, you know, like what business she wants to wants to run? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and essentially that. as a freelancer or a self-employed person. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, I want to read up on this church being taken over by sex workers thing. This sounds <laughs> in particularly Leon. interesting. Yeah. Yes. Um, hilariously, the first Canadian sex worker rights organization uh, was called Beaver. <laughs> <laughs> so this is in 1977, and uh, it was really around all sex stuff, so pornography, any sort of erotic art, and then also uh, prostitution. Um, and Beaver stood for Better End All Vicious Erotic Repression. <laughs> Does Beaver still exist? That's a good question. I didn't look that up. I feel like it should. That's like the coolest name ever. <laughs> I know. Um, and it says, in my notes I have, based in Toronto, mandate was, quote, legitimize the female sex decriminalize prostitution, unquote. Other exciting things in sex worker activ activism history is the first ever World Whores Congress was held in Amsterdam <laughs> in 1985. Right. And uh, the people there wrote the World Charter for Prostitutes' Rights. So it was the idea to get all sex workers kind of united uh, to fight for rights uh, together, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, that'd be very cool. Like almost like a like a labor movement. Um, in Canada, there were a, a big sort of turning point, or one of the first cases that kind of shifted us into modern challenges and thinking about sex work laws. In May 1975, a woman named Deborah Hutt was arrested and convicted for sex work, um, and fought the verdict all the way to Supreme Court. And the the ruling came down that to be charged with soliciting, so like by trying to get someone to hire you for sex work, um, it had to be pressing, persistent, and directed toward one person. Um, and it, they also clarified this this legal decision clarified that uh, a motor vehicle was not a public place. Um, oh. So, because it was not allowed in public places, but the argument was, well, a motor vehicle is not a public place. Um, and so, with this definition, then solicitation laws couldn't really be used as easily. Right. Um, because if someone was doing the soliciting in their private car or soliciting to someone in a private car, uh -huh. um, it was essentially ruled that that was allowed, sort of. <laughs> right. And so from that Supreme Court case, there started to be more discussion about how do we regulate sex work? What is legal? What is illegal? And at the time, there was a special committee on pornography and prostitution put together. 
And they were deemed with doing research. um, And I think their research included like actually talking to sex workers, uh, which is rare nowadays when we're talking about laws. Um, And they wrote a report that came out in 1985 that was really progressive. So they said based on their research, and they also looked at stuff around the world, um, and they thought that it was preferable or they declared that it was preferable that prostitution take place inside. Mm. So obviously, it's much safer Mm -hmm. um, if people are indoors, um, if there's other people around to protect them, if things go wrong. Um, It's way less risky than jumping into a stranger's car. Yeah, absolutely into a mobile device that can take you wherever they want to take you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the if if your goal is to quote protect women and girls, which is again most prostitution stuff talks about women and girls. Mm-hmm. Um there are people other than women and girls who do sex work. Mm. Um right. but most of the rules are around protecting women and girls. Of course. Because they cannot protect themselves. Yes. <laughs> um and so under the this special report um, by the Fraser Committee, they said that um, people could also work out, out of their homes. So like up to two people could work in a home mm. um, and that there should be legal prostitution establishments that were regulated by the city or licensed by a city, essentially. Um, and they did actually shift the public place or they recommended that a car actually should be considered a public place and therefore not allowed to have sex work in a car. (laughs) Um, So essentially they argued that sex work should only be happening indoors, which is a very reasonable recommendation. Mm -hmm. Um, So these recommendations came out in 1985. What do you think happened? Nothing. (laughs) Uh, yes. So the the plot t- twist is this meticulously researched document that made these recommendations to improve the safety of people who are doing this work was rejected um, because the Mulroney government came into power. Um, and so instead of following these rules that would have... Um, been like been a step forward for sex worker rights and sex worker safety. Um, they introduced bill what was called B- Bill C forty nine or the Communicating Law, and so this is specifically they were focused on reducing public nuisance, and they did not want people doing sex work outside or soliciting outside, or having anyone, you know, communicate about sex work at all in the public, ever. Right. Um, so they made essentially any kind of street prostitution illegal, um, criminalized any communication for the purposes of prostitution. Um, and it included and said it was illegal for either men or women to communicate about it. So whether you're a purchaser or a seller or uh, a man or a woman doing the, the work. This essentially has nothing to do with the report. No, they rejected everything. (laughs) That's not true. They the only thing they kept in was the the whole public space, like a oh, car was still a public okay. space. Right. So just get rid of even that exemption. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. So they kept that part of the report and then rejected everything else, um, and so that shifted prostitution, which had been sort of like a health issue and then a protection of women issue, and then it became a public nuisance issue. <laughs> so that was how it was reframed. Right there. Right. Um, and essentially, it was the idea that like 
good law-abiding citizens were having their safety threatened by sex workers and pimps. Right, right. It's like, look look at our neighborhood going to, going to shit because there's someone on the sidewalk. Yeah. And so basically their goal was they wanted to criminalize prostitution more and be able to arrest more people. Right. So essentially did the opposite of what the report so it's like it's like the war on drugs is the war on sex work. Yes. Yeah. So you get more jail, more policing, and we know that always leads to great and wonderful things. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we know we know the police never have sex with sex workers. Right. <laughs> never. They never exploit them. No. Um, yeah. Again, we are being sarcastic. <laughs> There should be like, I think oh, also there yeah. should be a sarcasm font. I'm like, <laughs> there should be a sarcasm like audio. <laughs> hmm. I, I mean, I could put like a boing before. <laughs> I mean, we are using sarcastic tones. So. <laughs> uh, so the next big legal thing was uh, what's called the prostitution reference. So in laws, if, if there's a possibility that laws are unconstitutional, you can call a reference question, um, which is essentially a case where they examine, is this thing legal? <laughs> or, do, or is it constitutional or is it non-constitutional? Sorry, who calls the reference question? Like in the government, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like a, so yeah. someone can call it um, like a, a lawyer or like an interested party. So yeah. yeah, someone can bring a legal case against yes. it. Okay. It's not when you said call it, I picture somebody calling the f- picking up the phone and there's like a hotline. No, no, no. Like this is unconstitutional, yo. No, not not quite like that. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, I understand government very well, clearly. Um, but it, it is a case, but it's not like a case to like convict anyone. It's essentially experts are called to debate about whether something is constitutional. Right, right. Um, and so in 1990, the court determined that. Uh, the body house law. So it was asked, the question was asked, is the body house law unconstitutionally vague? They were found that it was not. They they thought it was fine. Oh. Um, but the communication law was found to violate uh, section 2B of the Charter of Rights, uh, the right to freedom of expression. Um, but as sometimes happens in these cases, um, this it was thought that even though it did violate the Charter of Rights, that that was okay um, because it was needed to protect essentially other people's rights. So even though the right to communicate should be protected under the Charter of Rights, in this case, it was seen that because sex work had been deemed a public nuisance, that it was infringing on other people's rights. Right. And so that's why it was okay to, even though it violated the sex <laughs> workers' rights, it was okay Ugh. Because that's a, a bit of a stretch, there, guys. I mean, it's common. <laughs> yeah. Um, essentially, yeah, they said because sex work is a public nuisance, that it was we justifiable can, yeah. to prevent yeah. this. Charlie Wrights goes out the window. Yes. So we're in 1990. So the Mulroney laws are still on the books. Yes. And really, the there's some stuff that happens, but really, the next big thing is a series of cases that were brought by um, assorted sex workers that eventually went to the Supreme Court in what's called the Bedford case. And so this was named after Terry Jean Bedford, one of the people who brought the case. Um, Other people that were associated were Amy Leibovich and Valerie Scott. So the 2013 Bedford decision 
struck down three laws related to sex work uh, by the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court deemed they were unconstitutional. So the keeping a body house was mm-hmm. deemed unconstitutional, right. or sorry, laws against keeping a body house. Okay. Um, laws against living off the avails of prostitution were mm. de- deemed unconstitutional and communicating for the purposes of prostitution. Right. So all three of those laws were struck down and the Supreme Court, because they're not a legislative body, so they can say, yes, this is not constitutional, mm-hmm. but they can't say, these are the laws you should have. Right. So the government was given one year to write new laws. Right. Who was in power in 2013 to 2014? <laughs> Harper. So, yeah. So the Harper government was tasked with coming up with new laws. Oh, good, good. And But the having these laws struck down as unconstitutional was huge, right? And sex workers all around the country rallied right. to lobby the government to say, hey, listen to us. We've, got, we've mm-hmm. done the research. We have the lived experience. Like, here's what we think would work best. Here's what we want. Here's what we need. Guess what they did? <laughs> they ignored it. Absolutely. <laughs> they ignored it. And pressed on with some ideologically uh, focused legislation. Yeah, essentially. Um, So what came up out of this was Bill C-36, which came into law December 6, 2014. Uh, I will note that December 6 is the International Day for Remembrance and Violence Against Women. That's not exactly what it's called. Right. Um, And the government made a big show of like we're releasing these laws to protect women on Ah, this day of of remembrance of violence against women (laughs) as sex worker organizations were like you are making it worse um so bill c36 which is called the protection of communities and exploited persons act essentially conflates sex trafficking so people who are not consenting people who are being exploited um and sex workers who are doing it of their own free will and, you know, choosing this life uh, for various reasons. It essentially conflates all sex work as sex trafficking and frames it as like, we need to protect, again, these poor, innocent women um, with our laws. And so the new laws as of 2014 essentially make everything around sex work illegal. Right. Um, so purchasing sex is illegal. Um, advertising sex is illegal. Uh, any sort of material benefit. So if someone, like I say, is a bodyguard for a sex worker or, I mean, they frame it as like a pimp. Um, right. So getting any sort of material benefit from sex work is illegal. Right. Um, yeah. So anything around sex work is illegal, but sex work itself is not illegal. Mm-hmm. And the sex worker is immune from legal charges. Right. And there's on the Canadian justice government website, there's a, like a frequently asked questions about these laws. And Mm -hmm. I find it comical. I don't have them handy right now, but when I was reading through them, I'm like, it's so contradictory. So it's like advertising sex is illegal, but if you are advertising sex for yourself, <laughs> like if you are the sex worker advertising sex, then it's not illegal. Uh-huh. But like 
running a ad for sex work is illegal. <laughs> like the so, company that the third party that's getting paid to run an ad, for example. Oh, that could potentially be illegal. Huh. Well then. <laughs> okay, so if um, someone runs an ad saying I want to have sex with men, mm -hmm. that's legal. Mm -hmm. uh, if they run an ad saying I want to have sex with men for fifty bucks, <laughs> is that legal? no, 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 no? I'm saying that's like, kind of the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I mean, trying to, I'm just trying to process this here, but but what you were really saying is like running that ad, the the newspaper or the mm -hmm. website is illegally running an ad like they it's potentially not potentially but but also i mean i know from vancouver the mm -hmm. back three pages of the georgia strait is ads for for all sorts of you know mm -hmm. sex work and stuff like that mm -hmm. and they, they don't seem to be getting in trouble for it yeah and so it like technically that could fall under this it doesn't seem to be super enforced in canada yeah um there's laws in the States, new laws that came in, again, to protect poor, innocent women. Under the rubric girls. of uh, sex trafficking, right? Yeah. And so the laws are called Fo the FOSTA-SESTA laws. Mm -hmm. And I'm mm -hmm. just trying to find what that stands for. It's two separate bills. Um, right. So it's the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, which is FOSTA. And the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, which is SESTA. Right. And they're usually just conflated as FOSTA-SESTA. And again, they completely conflate sex work and sex trafficking. And uh, implemented in the U.S. stricter laws around sex work. Um, but relevant to advertising in the Canadian context, um, they kind of closed the, or they did close this loophole so there's a legal loophole that if you host a website and other people post content on it, you are not liable for that content. So we're talking like Craigslist and Backpage and things like that. Or anything. Twitter. Yeah. Facebook. Right. Right. Chat forums in the 90s. Like mm -hmm. this is when this law was <laughs> implemented in the 90s um, to essentially protect people who are doing the hosting. Right. Um, so if someone w went on your chat forum and said, I'm going to mm -hmm. murder thousands of people, mm -hmm. yeah. you're not responsible for that content. And FOSTA, SESTA turns that on its head. For sex-related stuff only. Yeah, right. So now, if any website or social media site or anything that's hosted in the U.S. is thought to be promoting sex work, or they, they see everything as sex trafficking. Yeah. <laughs> so essentially, anything sexual mm -hmm. um, is potentially a violation of FOSTA-SESTA, mm -hmm. and so the, like, Facebook can be charged. Yeah. So, for example, I run an organization called Sex Ed East, and I recently ran a series of classes that I called Sex Ed for Professionals, and it was specifically about doing sex ed for people who work in helping professions, so, like, psychologists, doctors, social workers, and my ads were blocked. Like I was not allowed to advertise on Facebook <laughs> right. because I was seen as selling a sexual service, <laughs> which is illegal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Nobody wants to be, none of these publishers. Well, I mean, Facebook's always dodging the, the notion that they're a publisher, but uh, none of these websites want to get taken to court. Like the, the, yeah. The, yeah. They don't want to take a risk. So it winds up being, I mean, it's just amazing. It's, it's like a, it's like a, a, a bomb goes off that just restricts sexual freedom everywhere. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I just wonder 
like the like those legislation like that and with the the conservative governments here is is is, is it just sheer ignorance i.e. sex all sex work is sex trafficking <laughs> like do they actually believe that or do they or do some of these guys know that if you wrap this up in sex trafficking that that you can pass you know restrictive legislation that otherwise you wouldn't be able to probably both yeah <laughs> <laughs> i absolutely think you slap sex trafficking on anything and who is going to vote against that? Who's exactly. going to be like, I'm pro-sex yeah, trafficking? <laughs> and I remember an interview on Call Your Girlfriend podcast with Kamala Harris, who was for the FOSTA-SESTA right. things. And they kind of challenged her on it a little bit and said, you know, like sex workers are saying, this is not going to be good for them. This is going to be dangerous. This is going to drive them further underground, which is more unsafe. Um, what What are your thoughts on that? And Kamala Harris just went on and on about protecting people from sex trafficking. And obviously those were her talking points, but um, yeah, I I think it's a hybrid of both ignorance, but also intentionality. Like if you, nobody's going to vote against sex trafficking. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to get something through, call it sex trafficking. <laughs> Done. So yeah, that brings us up to the present day, <laughs> essentially. Um, there are still legal challenges that are going forward to the new laws that were pro proposed by Bill C-36 here in Canada. Um, but it's so frustrating to me that the the laws were struck down because they were deemed unconstitutional. And so they kind of just skirted around it by being like, <laughs> okay, well, we're not going to infringe the, the freedoms or the rights of the sex worker, but we'll make it basically impossible for them to do their job and more dangerous, right? So if you can't you know, work with others, um, that makes you more unsafe. Um, if you have to secretly place ads or like find sneaky ways to place ads, that makes you more unsafe. Uh, and one of the arguments I've heard for this, um, uh, or like why this is such an issue, especially with when we're talking about sex trafficking, is if your concern is stopping sex trafficking, don't you want to have the people advertising <laughs> the services to be more public so that police can then find them. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, yeah, again, the more underground you make it, the more harm comes yeah. to the people who are either being trafficked because they're being more underground and harder to find. And also the people who are doing sex work by choice. Yeah. Yeah. Just, it, it freaks me out. The more you drive it underground and the more that removes the humanity of the sex workers and we just call them prostitutes and hookers and whores mm -hmm. and you just look at them as these gross you know almost non-human things on the street and next thing you know i mean this this is the more we make advice you get serial killers preying on sex workers because we we as a society look down on these people as less than human yeah and again as i said jeremy and i are both from vancouver where robert Pickton operated mm. for decades killing sex workers and nobody cared. Um, a lot of them were indigenous women as well. And so the police just didn't care, didn't think it was a big deal, assumed like, oh, these people are just drug addicts. They've just disappeared. Or like essentially the the rhetoric was like, oh, they've just left. They've yeah. gone away. Yeah. <laughs> and didn't look into it for a really long time. And then lo and behold, when people finally started taking it seriously, this guy had murdered I don't even know how many people. Yeah, it sucks because at least with the websites where sex workers could 
place their ads and there was they, they could build community and people could be like don't you know don't get yes, services from yes. this guy and yeah yeah watch out for this and now nothing. you know nothing yeah so it's yeah it makes it harder to vet mm-hmm. the johns yeah. it makes it harder to get references for example and yeah and if you're a sex worker and you can't make money this makes you rife for a pimp you know to to swing in and and saying, hey, you know, I, I can take care of you, so to speak. You know what I mean? But like, it's, just, it, it's again, it can create the very problem that these laws are trying to address-ish. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And again and again, sex worker organizations have advocated for decriminalization. Yeah. And one model that has been... So decriminalization, to my knowledge, um, and I... My knowledge is fairly limited to the uh, English-speaking world, um, but to my knowledge, New Zealand is the only country that currently has decriminalized sex work, um, and so that happened in 2003, and from what I understand from reading um, sex worker union blog type things, um, it seems to be going reasonably well. Uh, the research on it is split, and it's interesting to me. So, for example, I read something that said, you know, once sex work was decriminalized in New Zealand, um, sex workers started getting more kinky requests or, oh. or more like, quote, deviant sexual <laughs> requests right. than before. And they the article framed it as a bad thing. And that, but from my perspective, I was like, oh, people who had kinky interests who were afraid when it was illegal now feel more comfortable seeking out those services. That was my reaction, exactly. Mm-hmm. Just like, okay, cool. People are, have a, an avenue to explore these things instead of repressing it, yeah. which can lead to violence and, yeah, yeah, dysfunctional behavior. Again, to be clear, like, everyone has a right to say no to any request, um, mm-hmm. but there are lots of people who work as dominatrixes who do all sorts of kinky stuff um, with their clients at the request of their clients. Um, but I, there's also the slippery slope of that, you know, women are responsible for taming men by s- <laughs> providing them with sexual services. Like that right. goes down the incel line road. <laughs> ah, yes. um, so we need to be aware of that at the, at least. Um but yeah, just the the research on it um, in general seems to be showing a benefit, um, but there's still debates within that. Hmm. And one of the big arguments against any sort of decriminalization or legalization is that if you say that sex work is work and it's a legitimate avenue of work to do, then women could be essentially required to do it, right? So say they're laid off from a job, they might be required to then go work at the brothel down the street. Right. But how likely is that? I mean, to me, it seems unlikely that people, because the whole thing about sex work and having control over your own body and choosing your choice is that you should only do it if you are choosing your own choice. I mean, but under capitalism, who knows? Right. It's tricky. Yeah. We have to do jobs we don't like. But sex work seems like, yeah, seems like a bigger leap if you don't want to do that. Yeah. But then by saying it's a bigger leap, then you're buying into this idea that there's somehow special, something yeah, I special know, about I know. sex I, work. I didn't like it when I was saying it. <laughs> I didn't like it, but it's, it's complicated. It's, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, all of this stuff is really complicated. And especially, so that argument has been put forward by a lot of uh, feminists who are against sex work and who argue that any sex work in any form, whether it's porn or prostitution or anything like that, is inherently exploitative and can never be done in a way that is freely chosen. Um, and of course, under capitalism, you know, do we any, do any of us have a choice? Editor's note. I just wanted to jump in here and clarify first that not all feminists, so it's really a branch of radical feminists, sometimes referred to as sex worker exclusionary radical feminists that argue against sex work, period. Uh, of course, plenty of sex workers are feminists and plenty of feminists support sex workers. So I just wanted to clarify that here. So back to, I think, the point I was trying to make <laughs> way back when, when I was talking about decriminalization or the different laws around it. Um, the most common model in terms of like going away from criminalization is legalization. So that's what you see in the Netherlands and in Australia uh, or in places like um, Las Vegas. No, what's that called? Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> um, where you see that sex work is legal, but there's all sorts of rules and regulations around it. And so this means the government essentially decides the rules, decides where people work, decides potentially when people work, um, does all sorts of screenings. Like there could be all sorts of requirements. You probably have to get licensed. Um, and again, that mentality is based around the idea that sex workers are going to spread disease. And so they have to be regulated um, and that they're essentially a health hazard. Um and there's other reasons for it as well, but the the reason that sex work organizations are usually not arguing for legalization and are instead arguing for decriminalization is because, again, they want the choice to do with the, what they want with their bodies as opposed to having the government control when, where, and why. Right, right. So that really brings us up to modern day and gives you an overview – or, well, modern day in Canada – gives you an overview of the different forms of regulation or legalization or criminalization of sex work. Uh, what we're doing in Canada is similar to what's known as the Nordic model. And so this is popular in Nordic countries in Europe uh, the, with the idea that you don't criminalize the sex worker, but you criminalize everything around sex work. And it's not exactly the Nordic model, but it's pretty darn close. And um, so it does have models in other places, but again, sex work organizations around the world are calling for decriminalization. Right. I also want to be really clear that there are absolutely people who've been involved in the sex trade who think the Nordic model and like what we have in Canada is the way to go. Um, they, they want sex work to be criminalized. They don't want it to be allowed um, because they were harmed so severely by um, essentially being coerced into sex work or having to do sex work for survival. And it was extremely traumatic for them. Um, and those are valid perspectives as well. Mm. But by and large, the sex worker organizations and sex worker rights organizations argue for decriminalization as a way of harm reduction um, because it makes it safer for people to do sex work and potentially safer for people to get help and to get out of doing sex work because it can decrease the stigma around it as well. So whether you are trafficked or are being coerced into it or are doing it of your own free will, everyone benefits if there's a destigmatization of sex work. Mm, yeah. 
Absolutely. Any other questions, comments, concerns, or <laughs> thoughts about sex work that you were curious about? No, no. I'm just kind of marveling at how, yeah, our legal framework is kind of this moat, this moat of regulation of illegality, say, mm -hmm. saying this is illegal, but right at the center of that donut, or that little castle inside that moat, is this is the tacit acknowledgement that that it's not illegal, but that a sex worker can do what they want. Mm-hmm with their body. It's not illegal for them to do that, but there's a whole framework mm -hmm. around that, mm -hmm. criminalizing it, which uh, is just kind of sad and annoying. I just hope our governments will maybe go back and read that report. Like, From like, 1985. Look at some evidence and listen to the people who do it. Well, yeah, I was going to say, listen to the current sex workers yeah. and the sex worker rights organizations mm -hmm. who are advocating for decriminalization. Yeah. Thanks for joining us on our journey. I hope that was interesting for you. I do want to note that one thing we didn't really get into was the the varying experiences of sex workers and the different levels and types of sex work. So people who are doing survival sex work, meaning they're living on the streets, often doing it to support a drug habit, are really the most vulnerable and the most at risk and are usually from the most marginalized communities. This includes anyone working at the street-based level. So whether it is cisgender women, trans women, men, really anyone who's working at the street-based level is usually uh, experiencing much more risk and much more harm, uh, both at the hands of their clients and also the police. And often the sex workers that we hear from um, more publicly or who are given platforms are ones who are working indoors or who are uh, high-class escorts, for example, um, and who are, are taken more seriously and given more legitimacy. Um, and these are the voices we often hear more so when we're talking about sex worker rights. So I just want to note that um, as something to keep in mind when thinking about these debates and these issues. And all of this information is publicly available. You can Google. There's, you can find it on the Government of Canada website. You can read the entire decision of the Bedford decision, for example. You can read all of Bill C-36 if you're really curious. I really think it's important to be aware of these laws and the hypocrisy embedded within them, this idea that they are framed as protecting people and specifically protecting women, but also protecting communities from the, quote, nuisance of sex work, uh, when really they're doing the exact opposite and causing more harm. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode are by Jeremy Dahl. You can check him out at palebluedot.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at doweknowthings, and you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things. <laughs>